Welcome to Fate's Wide Wheel, a Quantum Leap podcast with Sam and Dennis. We are coming to you from our top secret headquarters at Project Quantum Leap, but you can find us online at fwwquantumleappod.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Fate's Wide Wheel. And please do us a favor by hitting the subscribe button on iTunes. Hey everyone, welcome to a special episode of Fate's Wide Wheel. I'm Dennis. And I am Sam. Uh, we are not talking about a particular episode this week, but we are talking with Jean-Pierre Dorleac. Yes. Did I pronounce that right? <laughs> I think you did. <laughs> yeah. We are talking with Jean-Pierre Dorleac, who was the costume designer for Quantum Leap, uh, all the way from uh, after the pilot, which he has a very interesting star, story. Star-crossed yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. Of how he, he came to be part of the show uh, after the pilot. And, and throughout the end of the series. So we have a very wide-ranging conversation with him about uh, Quantum Leap, uh, his book, The Naked Truth, an upcoming book that he has coming out. Uh, like a mystery yeah, novel. Uh, yeah, yeah, mystery novel, a fiction mystery novel sometime coming out. In his previous uh, uh, mystery novel, um, Abracadabra, Alakazam, mm-hmm. um, which both of the books are very well-reviewed. Yeah. Um, and, and so it was it was wonderful to speak with him. And we do talk a, a, a bit about non-Quantum Leap-related stuff, but I, I honestly... I can't imagine that any of our listeners aren't going to enjoy sure. the conversation just in general. Um, you know, he's clearly a very talented individual, and, and it, it, was, it was a pleasure to be able to speak with him uh, about his work, and obviously about his work on something that we, we love so much. Absolutely. All right. Enjoy this interview with Jean-Pierre Dorleac. Yes, and give him a follow on Twitter. Uh, his, his website also is www.jeanpierredorleac.com. There is a hyphen between the Jean and the Pierre, just so you know, but we'll put that in the show we'll notes as well. Show. So, um, But yeah, uh, check it out. We hope you enjoy. Enjoy. Jean-Pierre, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. How are you? Doing great. How are you doing today? Oh, it's great. Uh the weather where I am is really wonderful, and uh, I've just been out in the garden all day, really. I have a big collection of orchids that I'm uh, uh, transferring to other pots, so it keeps me busy when I'm not designing or writing. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, actually, surprisingly, uh, the weather is great in Chicago today for the first time in a while. We're actually up Yeah, you guys have a lot today. of snow, I know. Uh, yeah. Uh, so you were telling us, uh, before, before we hit the the record button, uh, you, you've been in Chicago a handful of times before. Oh yeah. Long time ago. I mean, well, a couple of years ago, the last time I was there, I did a big charity event, um, for uh, a major hospital there, but I don't have that information on hand right now. Uh, and then before that I was there for several openings of films and so forth. But I originally went to Chicago way back in mm, 70, the middle 70s to do a play at Arlington Park Theater, uh, which was out by the racetracks. I don't have any idea if they're still there. Uh, and it was out in the middle of nowhere. And I left Los Angeles to go there, and it was, like, sunny and warm and I arrived in Chicago, there was a snowstorm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This was like just prior to uh, 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 Halloween. And the um, play was called The Pleasure of His Company. It starred Lana Turner and my old friend Louis Jordan from France. And um, 
It's all in my book called The Naked Truth, uh, an irrelevant chronicle of delirious escapades. And uh, it, it details um, my first experience with working with a major star, which I was uh, more or less baptized in fire. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> and Liz Smith, the uh, famous New York columnist, read the book and said, the whole chapter about Lana Turner is a master class exercise in placating, getting what is correct through subterfuge, good general lessons in fit and fabric, and finally knowing when enough is enough. <laughs> yeah, buying the book, she said, is worth the cost of it just for the story alone. So that was uh, my first induction into Chicago. I had to drive in the snowstorm to please Miss Turner between Arlington Park and Marshall Fields in Chicago in the snow uh, with snow chains that I'd never, ever ever had to use before. I never I knew nothing about them. I had to do it 38 times to please her because she oh was my so God. Oh my, wow. Impossible. That's round, that's not, that's 38 times. That, it's one way and one way and it was over 45 minutes, I remember. Yeah. And I, once I got lost on the freeway and I was so scared of trying to get off at another exit and come back on again because I didn't know where I was. Oh, my God. I just kept driving. <laughs> Chicago's quite a place, I must say. It's really beautiful. I, I went out to the end of the pier to in, in the city. I don't even remember the names of all these places and had lunch at some wonderful seafood restaurant out there. Uh, the last, well, the last couple of times I was there, I did that. Anyway, you're lucky. It's a very pretty city. Uh, it is. H half of the year? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's sometimes, you know, the winter goes on a little too long, but no, I, I love living here. Uh, I've been here for about five years, and uh, in that time, I've definitely grown to, to love it quite a bit. I, I actually just came back from New York um, yesterday, and uh, it, it's funny because I love both of those cities so much, uh, but Chicago feels so much like home now um, that I don't look at it in the same way as I did before I moved here. Whereas when I go to visit New York, it feels like a an adventure, an all new adventure. Um, and, and so it was just interesting because it'd been the first time I'd been to New York in a little while, actually. Um, but uh, when you were, when you were here working on, on that show, uh, what was the name of the show actually? It was called the pleasure of his company. Okay. It was by um, a, a, a renowned English playwright actress called Cornelia Otis Skinner. And it was made into a movie with Fred Astaire and Lily Palmer and Debbie Reynolds and Tab Hunter oh, wow. from the 60s. And, uh, but it wasn't a very good film. It's a, it's a ballroom, a, a drawing room comedy that was popular in the late... Uh, 58 and uh, like 1958. Yeah. And that was the title of Liz Smith's column that you can find on the internet. All you have to do is to Google me and then look for Liz Smith's review. And she said, the, 
Lana Turner was not the pleasure of Jean-Pierre Jarrett. <laughs> <Jarrett's company. laughs> yeah, no, I, no, I had read, because um, I'm, I'm a big fan of old Hollywood, and I had read that Lana Turner, uh, especially in the 70s, um, w- was having a lot of issues with, with drinking and, and just, you know, not necessarily at her best. Um, and did you, did you find not to get into a bunch of like Hollywood gossip, but did you find that that affected your working relationship with her at all? Was that something you have that you to missed? read the book? I can only tell you, <laughs> you have to. Well, well played, sir. Well played. I'll tell you one part of the book that was very funny. I was going through a very trying period with her to get her to, we, we designed clothes for her and made them to the thousands of dollars and trimmed them in fur that were, was gotten from a furrier in Evanston. Oh, wow. Evanston, Illinois, and um, and matching shoes that were silver plated and everything. And then, then she decided she didn't want them because they were not the color she wanted. And then she wanted something else for the opening night. She was the word impossible to those who doesn't describe it. But so, <laughs> on one of my trips to Chicago and came back, we went to the dresses and, and she found nothing that she liked. And so she changed into a robe and picked up her cranberry juice, which was about three teaspoons of cranberry juice, and the rest was vodka, <laughs> in a tumbler, and said, turn on the television and let's get some life in this room. And then they turned on blood and sand with uh, Tyrone Power and Rita Hayworth. Yeah. And... Lana said, oh, Rita, poor thing. I hear she drinks. And at the same time, Lana sank into the sofa with her cranberry juice and slipped off of it. She was so drunk. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my Lord. Well, I, I can tell you, I will, I will definitely be picking up the book because uh, I, would love to, I would love to read more about not only that, but just your experiences in, in general because – you know, looking um, at, at like IMDb and, and seeing all of the things that you've worked on, and in particular seeing things that I've been a fan of, in addition to Quantum Leap, um, it, I'm sure that there's some incredible stories uh, to tell. And I know that also, as I, I'm not sure if you're aware, but both Dennis and I have worked as actors and um, mostly stage uh, for me. But uh, I sure. always found that the relationship with the costume designer was extremely important to me um, because there's nothing like, you know, in, in particular working with like equity theaters and, you know, and on, on union sets and things like that, the, the opportunity to get that costume on for the first time and, and what it does to you as an actor. So um, I just have appreciation for, for your work in general uh, as a designer, um, much less the fact that you've worked on, on things that, you know, I genuinely have enjoyed like Quantum Leap and, you know, even you know, things like Knight Rider, Battlestar Galactica, and then, of course, the you know, films like Somewhere in Time um, or, or Heart and Souls, which is funny because Dennis had mentioned that to me before we uh, were, were going to interview you. And, and I laughed because when I was a teenager, um, I, I remember that film. I had, the v, I, had the, I had a copy of it on VHS, and I must have watched it. I have no idea why, looking back, really, but I must have watched it into the double digits uh, because I just enjoyed it so much. Yes, because the film had a lot of pathos to it and really uh, uh, moved a lot of people in uh, various ways. Um, I have to go back and tell you something. Um, Once again, um, 
I'm reiterating an awful lot of what I covered in my book, The, uh, the Naked Truth. Um, I, I started out as an actor, and I've always attributed to a great deal of my success was the fact that as an actor, I knew how a costume, how important it was to develop your character in it or have your character revealed in it, and, but it also had to fit. And most costume designers were, well, for some reason or other, the, the business is filled with a lot of people who are very homely, meaning they are involved in sort of artsy, craftsy little, I'll sew this together and I'll put some little plastic balls on this and so forth. They're not really dedicated to designing costumes. They get into the field because it's easy to get into and because they can sew and so on and so forth. So uh, I studied a great deal about or took into consideration a great deal what every actor I had to dress wore because I knew how important it was that it fit them well and they were comfortable enough that they didn't really have to make any transition. And after several decades in the business, the compliment that I kept getting all the time when people left the fitting room uh, even in television, especially in Quantum Leap, because actors are cast at the very last minute. You may not know that in TV, in in theater, but in in television, the majority of them are cast the night before they work, and the, or the day before they work. Jane Seymour was cast in Battlestar Galactica as the female lead. Uh, Eight hours before she was to work in in San Diego. Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and that is true of this. And so most of the actors come in, and they really have very little time to even study their part. But the best compliment I ever ever had was, you know, I had no idea what I was playing until I came in here and put on this costume, and that always meant a great deal to me because. That was my whole intentions on becoming a costume designer, was that I loved history and I loved what people wore, and I was very, uh, I was very adamant about uh, hopefully it being able to inform a great deal of the populace of the world. I didn't you know, just satisfy myself with the United States, but I'm... <laughs> I saw so many bad costume movies when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s. Uh, one of my very closest friends, who I was madly in love with for uh, over uh, 20 years, was Gene Simmons, the actress. Mm. And we were like uh, joined at the hip. Sure. And Jean and I used to giggle and giggle and giggle because she did a movie in 1954, I think it was, for... 20th Century Fox called The Egyptian with Edmund Purdom and uh, Gene Tierney and a, a lot of other big people in the cast. And it was all supposed to be set in Egypt. And the clothes in it, Gene Tierney's clothes, looked like she just stepped out of a New York City cocktail party in the 50s. Oh and because I was so incensed by things like that, 
Um, that's why I became a costume designer. And in turn, this book I've written is not about me. It, uh, God forbid, who would be interested in my life? I wasn't that famous. <laughs> I, wrote uh, I wrote this to to inform people, one, about what is a costume designer? Because we get called everything. We get wardrobe people and stylists and fashion designers, because nobody seems to know the difference. Well, that is all explained. And what is also explained is what our real purpose is. It's not to make people look pretty. Not everybody wants to be Bob Mackey, who did all of those fabulous things for Cher. I think his work is wonderful, but that was not my interest in in being a costume designer. My interest was in in making people aware of what actually the period looked like, and there would be no mistakes in it whatsoever. And, and a lot of costume designing is overlooked because some of the costume designers have a tendency to go more for, oh, let's make her look pretty, or let's make him look great. And they forget about very small details that really speak huge volumes on screen, and that is like a man's shirt. If the collar's wrong and the cuffs have buttons on them and it's supposed to be 1935, wrong. <laughs> if the tie is not really, really short and instead it's down to the waistline, wrong. Because those are very small things that costume designers tend to overlook because they pay more attention to glamorizing the women, which they think that's what their job is. So with that in mind, that's why I wrote the book, and it's filled with a, a lot of stories about production and about the terrible problems you have to go through to achieve things because of the inadequacies in Hollywood and the fact that it is not a glamorous, wonderful position. It's a very hard-working position in which I work sometimes... I don't know, 14 hours a day and slept two or three hours. Mm. When I started doing Battlestar Galactica, I had uh, not just a whole race of people to design clothes for. I had a colony of spaceships that were filled with eight different colonies of people. And so I had to cap all kinds of costumes. And I was making, I mean, sketching, finding fabric and accessories for it, and boots and hats and buttons and and belts, et cetera, et cetera, for over 250 costumes a week. Wow. wow. Sometimes and in Quantum Leap on shows like Catch a Falling Star and uh, Deep South and uh, I can't remember all of them because sometimes there was huge amounts of costumes. It was the same story. I was, you know... Almost slept at the studios because um, I, I just was constantly working. It's not a glamorous job, and the actors you meet are not fantastic or fabulous. Usually they're boring, or usually they don't even know who you are, don't remember your name, and they're really sort of really apathetic to what you have to do and are only concerned with themselves and say such things like, oh, can't I have a blue blouse because I have blue eyes because they'll look so much better on screen. And I go, <laughs> no, I'm really sorry. We're not interested in your eyes in this scene. So it's a very different, it's a whole different world than people realize. It's, it's, uh, 
it, it looks wonderful when you watch it in a movie theater, but you don't know what it, you have to go through to get those scenes of it. And what everybody forgets, too, is that every single time they cut in a movie or on television, that was a different scene. And right. sometimes, because movies, film, television and movies, is not shot in continuity. Sure. We did things in... in I was watching something on Quantum Leap the other night where I remember they were in this... I don't remember what episode it was. They were in this hotel, and I remember downtown where we shot the hotel, and then they walked inside, and it was like this, you know, easy, graceful uh, change, segue. And that was Donna Soundstage on Universal Lock, and we shot the one on the soundstage before the one downtown, which was like at the beginning of the show and the other one was at the end of the show. So television and movies is much different than people seem to realize. Now, yeah. you have a lot of very favorite episodes of Quantum Leap that I, you, you've mentioned to me. Would you like to talk about one in particular or a couple? Uh, sure. So uh, actually we just covered it last week on uh – we reviewed the episode last week, and then we were talking about it a little bit before we hit the record button, but Pool Hall Blues. Oh, yeah, but la I saw your um, your screen, and you also did the, oh, I never can remember the name of it, the one where he was the Indian and his... Oh, um, Freedom, the, yeah. What's it called? Freedom. Freedom, right, yes. That was a wonderful episode. Um, the thing I remember about that episode, it wasn't any costumes except... We really worked very hard to get uh, a very authentic feeling for people in that area and the the work-type clothes that they wore with some kind of Indian influence so that it didn't look corny. Uh, I do remember the one thing was the trading post and the art direction and what a fabulous interior it was because I was on the set and was just totally odd because it... I had passed through New Mexico on Route 66 through Arizona during the time that we took place of freedom and uh, in the 70s and um, and remember seeing those places and they looked it looked absolutely identical. It was really quite a wonderful episode and and it was a, a great episode in. Uh, in its honesty, I thought, and we didn't do a great deal. A lot of our stuff was was somewhat comedic, but I, I remember that as one of my favorite episodes, just for the script alone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we I, I think both of us uh, really love that episode quite a bit, and I, I think that um, one of the things that that Quantum Leap in general does so well um, most of the time. I mean, sure, there are little nitpicky things here and there that I think. You know, others have pointed out in books, but that's not something that Dennis and I talk a lot about. Uh, is in general, the production values work so well in order to um, portray a, a certain era, a certain time period, and, and obviously your work goes uh, speaks to that quite a bit. Um, you know, I think that there are are certain episodes, like like Play It Again, Seymour, for instance, um, which is set. Uh, you know, in, in the early 50s and, and kind of has that, um, you know, gumshoe. Play, play it against Seymour? Yeah. 
No, I think it was set in the 50s, like 1957. Yeah, that's what I say. It was set in 1953. Oh, I thought you said 60s. I'm oh, very sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah. As wonderful as technology is, every once in a while, there's still going to be that misunderstanding. Uh, no, I, I did say 50s. But, yeah, you're correct. Yeah, it was, it was set in the 50s. Um, and I think that because specifically since it's set in 1953. Um, yeah, you're right. It was 53. Because I'm remembering Claudia's costumes. And it's, I can remember clothes. uh quicker because of women's there's more startling changes in women's clothes than oh. it is men. You have to look at men like twice before you can figure out the year. <laughs> <laughs> here's, you know, here's a general question for you that I, I've been thinking about. Um, it's not necessarily about a specific episode, but when, um, you know, when designing clothes for Scott Bakula within an episode and then also having to design the, the same clothes for the mirror image shots. I was just thinking about this today. This is great. Yeah. Did, did you find, did you, were you designing each individual costume to fit the individual actor or, or was there ever the moment of taking into account the fact that maybe it's a different body type in the mirror? So, oh God, it's what a wonderful question. Um, I'll tell you the story. Um, Oh, you're going to have to help me because I can't remember the names of the episodes anymore. Right? Um, nope, one nope. Yeah, episode was that he played um, a lawyer from the Deep South defending the black girl for murder or something. Uh, so oh, help God. me God, yeah. Yeah, so help me God. Uh, well, here's the story on re- reverse mirror shots. This was a, a major first in my career. Um, every character that he looked into the mirror and saw was shot through a pane of glass, not a mirror. Mm -hmm. So whoever was on the other side, which was an extra that had no speaking part, he was brought in only for fittings and sat around on set and then they used him. Um, (laughs) He had to wear the same costume that Sam wore but it had to be made completely backwards. Wow. So that the, so if it was a suit, the pocket was on the uh-huh. right instead of on the left, and the it buttoned on the left instead of on the right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it was a pattern tie, which we w- way, stayed way away from after sure. we tried it one time and it was almost nearly impossible to achieve, <laughs> uh, we did solid colors most of the time. But when we did the, when he was a baseball player and he looked in the mirror and he was wearing a jersey, I yeah. remember we had to have the the numbers made up backwards, which what the, the company who did them said they thought that we were insane. They thought that we were <laughs> Because cause I was just saying that because he left into a baseball player twice, and it's a goof that I never caught, but I it, it was caught and it was put in a, a trivia book by Matt Dale that we that we reference a lot, that actually in the pilot episode that that had been a detail that was missed. There was what? In the, in the, in the very first episode where that like 20-minute yes. segment where he leaps into a baseball player, yeah. uh, someone had pointed out the goof that, that actually – the, that that detail wasn't caught for the mirror image? It wasn't. It wasn't. That was one of the reasons I was brought into the show. Oh, uh, so can you... Uh, Amosar and I worked together a great deal, but for 
Don, Don was swayed by people and things and so forth and so on. We worked together first on Battlestar Galactica. Sure. And he wrote the episode that I won the Emmy for and several other episodes thereafter that I was fa- favored by. But so then I left to go off to do somewhere, something else, and he started up a show called Tales of the Gold Monkey and Universal, who that time was not, who was a producer on the show, also had a costume department, and they had staff people in the costume department that generally were there to do pilots and short movies and so forth. And a lot of them, a couple of them were really, really good. One of them was Edith Head, which is also in my book. And there was a couple of other ones, a a great woman named Yvonne. Now now I I stopped completely. Yvonne Wood, who who was fabulous with Western. She did a lot of um, things that Marlon Brando did that were Westerns, like One-Eyed Jackson. Love I don't remember. Anyway, so um, so to back up because I was away, Universal assigned him this costume designer for Tales of the Gold Monkey, and they did a pilot in Hawaii. And Don hated the costume so much entirely that he came back, hired me, and they reshot everything the leading lady was in and everything that Roddy McDowell wasn't in because they replay recast. Uh, English actor and brought Roddy McDowell in. So we reshot three quarters of the pilot, which is not in- uncommon in television. I did another pilot for Belisari years later called Tequila and Boner, if you believe that. I didn't. <laughs> um, so I thought, what is this about? <laughs> I said, Mexican sitting around jerking off. <laughs> but anyway, um, they made a pilot with an actor who was like about as wooden as a tree, mm-hmm. and uh, they shelved it. And they they brought they reshot the entire script with Jack Scalia, changed the title to Tequila and Bonetti, and <laughs> it was on the air. So this is not unusual. Back to Quantum Leap and the pilot episode. They shot Quantum Leap with two wardrobe people. And there wasn't anybody there to design. Wardrobe people are allowed to pull from stock and buy at stores and do fittings. They are not allowed to put pencil to paper or fabric to table or fabric to machine at all. They, Universal was trying to cut uh, the budget. They did the pilot, and it was so awful, and there were so many mistakes, they called me in and they brought me back. I redid a lot of Al's things and then they signed me to do the show. They did not do that scene and that's why they called me in and that's what they told me about it. So I was aware of what the big problem was by having seen that scene. That was not my work. That was somebody else's work who did the pilot and they didn't bother reshooting it because those shots cost a great deal of money. Okay, Back to what I was going to tell you about Leap of Faith and how we did costumes. Generally, when we do costumes for anybody, in television, we know that if this is going to be a leading lady, she's going to be probably no bigger than a size 8 because if you're bigger than that, you look like a refrigerator on screen. If you're a character actress, it's a different story. 
Uh, same thing with character actors, and same thing with leading men. Most leading men are 42 regular, 42 long. So when we're anticipating someone for a part in a show for, like, play it again, Seymour, I had no idea who was going to be cast as the, um, the widowed wife. Um, fortunately, it turned out to be Claudia Christian, who I had worked with before, who I absolutely, totally adored. She was just the most wonderful girl. I worked with her on a TV series that was very short-lived called Behringer's with Jack Scalia and Ezad um, um, Mignot and Andrea Marcovici and a lot of other people. You'll, you'll see me mentioning same actors over again. That's part of the real joy of this business is sometimes you get to really work with wonderful people over again, and Claudia was one of them. So when we, they told me that they were having the, the widowed wife and so forth, I knew she would be somewhere between a six and an eight. So we made everything up in an eight because if you make it a little bit bigger, then you have plenty of room to take it in. But if you make it too small and then try to fit it into an actress and there's no seam allowance to let it out to make it bigger, you're in a lot of hot water. Sure. Okay, here's the story. He was playing a southern lawyer from the south, and we had to make him a wonderful linen suit that looked like shit when it got wrinkled in the <laughs> humidity. And uh, we figured, uh, they, they talked about his wife and so forth and so on. We figured, as usual, it would be like a 42 regular. Well, somebody got a bug up their ass and didn't tell me about it. <laughs> and cast this guy who was like six foot six and was like, you know, a 50. Yeah. Uh. Well, well, there was no more fabric. We could only, the fabric had to match Sam's suit, so we had to make this suit. So there was no more fabric. All we had left were scraps and the suit. Oh, no. So I said, you guys, you know what the situation is? Why? Why? Why did you cast? Well, we we wanted somebody different, and this was funny for him to be big, and we needed this for tension in the movie and so on. So I, you know, it was like screw you, Jean Pierre. We don't care about your Robin. <laughs> so I um, I said to him, okay, I'll dress him, but I can only tell you one thing: you can only shoot him from the front. There's no over-the-shoulder shot, no nothing, because the back whole back panel of his suit is going to be of another fabric, and there's nothing I can do to even come close to what I've got. And that's how we shot him. He was shot in a suit that we had to let out the arms underneath with a piece of fabric, and the, the pants were like this huge gusset through the seat because we made pants with like a 34-inch waist, and his waist was like, you know, 42. <laughs> so, it was like a nightmare. So that answers your question, I think, in full. We never knew, we only surmised, we followed the rules we generally went by. But sometimes they always threw you a curve that was, uh, but that's part of the business. I uh, I was in the middle of, um, of, of North Carolina, which is redneck forever, and <laughs> the... Every fabric store I went to had nothing but polyester. This was like 1984. And they told me that this woman who was going to be playing a socialite who had four scenes, 
Then this awful movie I made with Shannon Doherty called Margaret Mitchell about the woman who wrote Gone with the Wind. Oh, yeah. And it was supposed to be 1912, <laughs> and she was a socialite at a tea party. And they cast this woman, well, she looked like Mount Rushmore. She was huge. Oh, my God. I mean, her neck was like 19 inches. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. And she was the dearest, sweetest woman there ever was. I'm not saying anything about her, but... I was there with no costumes, no stock that size, and I went to this store. I found the seamstress who could make things if I cut it for her, and all I could find was polyester, which wasn't even around in 1912. <laughs> <laughs> My God. So I did the best I could and disguised it as best I could. But, it, that, you know, this business is a very uh, sometimes... Um, you can lose your hair very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you find that when things like that do happen, that you're presented with a challenge? Is that, it, it, does that become fun for you, or, or is it more of a frustration because you're not necessarily able to do what might be, you know, in your mind's eye, and instead you have you're limited by it's you know, that. I, it's that exactly, but it's yeah. also. A, I'm not, I, as I told you, I, I started out from theater, and I, I knew everything from theater, more or less to say. I remember doing a play many, many years ago in which the guy was supposed to be dead, and he wasn't, and he wakes up in the embalming room, and he comes in, it was a melodrama. <laughs> and um, he was wearing this suit, and one night before he was to make his entrance, he suddenly got the urge that he had to urinate, and he went to the bathroom, and he came back out and came. I was only an actor then, but he went up to wardrobe, and he was, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I, <laughs> I couldn't unzip my zipper on these old pants, and so I tried to pee through this hole in my pocket. <laughs> oh, my and I, and I just peed off down the side of my costume. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> and I said, here, and I picked up this bottle of water and sloshed it all over him and said, tell him that the embalming fluid fell all over you. <laughs> like that who I worked with I'll tell you a very very true story not one of my favorite actresses you people <laughs> always love these stories sure it's Kirstie Alley oh god okay I did an episode I did a TV series in the 70s called Masquerade mm. with Greg Evigan and um, Rod Taylor and Kirstie Alley it was her first TV series and um, she was very young, and she was also very thin at the time. Yeah. Uh, I don't mean thin. She was not a six. She, she, was a, she was a good eight, at least. She was zothing, but she wasn't what she eventually became, <laughs> a deep <laughs> breather. <laughs> <laughs> 
but she was not a very adept person and, and not at all concerned about anything other than Kirsty. Mm. And most of the play, she wore a tourist uniform. She was supposed to be a tourist guide on a bus or something. Uh, and it, it was about these people who were really spies, but they operated as tourist guides in foreign countries so that they could investigate situations going on. Very Mission Impossible. Anyway, um, she had only this uniform. That's the only one thing we had doubles and triples on. But occasionally she had scenes where she was out at a party or reception wearing something. So she was just supposed to be at this, I don't know, Italian reception somewhere or something. And it was supposed to be chic and lovely. And so I found her this really beautiful shell pink, very, very light pink, and gore sweater dress that made her look like a million dollars with her dark hair. Mm. And uh, and she loved it, which I was thrilled with. And everybody loved it when she went on stage. And she did a couple of scenes with it. And then she was supposed to go off and then come back into the scene wearing the dress again. But in between time, Kirstie made a trip to the craft service table and found a wonderful big chocolate donut and a big cup of coffee and acting like the ding-dong she is, turned around and bumped in somebody and spilled it all down the front of her pale pink dress. And started screaming wardrobe. Well, Wardrobe came and looked at it, and they came immediately for me. I was on set because it was a big scene with a lot of other people. And uh, and she said, clean it, clean it, clean it. And I said, you can't clean chocolate out of that. Well, give me my double. I said, first of all, Kirsty, there is no double. This is a one-time scene. You were supposed to go to a cocktail party, not pig out at some, you know, Dunkin' Donuts. And I said, there's no way we can get this out for the other thing. And she said, well, what am I going to wear? I said, you'll have to wear your uniform. She goes, I hate that uniform. I said, you know what? Good. Wear it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Actors are very, very, very self-centered. And they really, I have to be very honest, I'm uh, I'm not crying. They don't really respect costumes. That is because the majority of them are not theater trained. I can always tell a theater trained actor because I can go into their trailer at the end of a shoot and their clothes are hung up on hangers. Other people just throw their clothes on the floor. They don't bother. They think, you know, that we're the maids and that we're there to clean them up. And it's, you know, actors are very... Kissy, kissy. Oh, man, when you're working with them, it's so darling this and darling that, and I love you, and this is fabulous, and da da da. And then 10 minutes after the martini shot, they can't even remember your name. And I'm not exaggerating. No, no, yeah, I've been in those situations before, too. Yeah. Now, so hopefully for, for a different take, just because of some of the things that we've read about him, but I am curious, going back to Quantum Leap, working specifically with Scott Bakula. And, and knowing how arduous his schedule was and knowing how 
you know, one week he's a trapeze artist and one week he's a lawyer and, you know, one week he's a test pilot. And, you know, when, when thinking about the costumes that you were constantly having to, to design for him and it seems not knowing, you, you know, but, but just an assumption that with his body type, you didn't necessarily have difficulties, you know, going from costume to costume other than maybe the demands of the particular period. Um, I would, I would think that due to the nature of his role, that those costumes would have been very important to him. So I'm just kind of curious what maybe your relationship with him was like during the course of the series. I had a wonderful relationship with both of them. Uh, Scott, um, Scott was very eager the first year and, uh, and learned an awful lot the second year. And, and, and we did great shows the third and fourth year. He got a little irritated at, in places. The only time I can remember that I was really pissed at him was <laughs> when he played the monkey and oh. had to wear the diapers. And he ca- made me drive 45 minutes out to some distant location because he wanted to know if there wasn't something I could do to make his ass look better in them. And I said, no, <laughs> these are diapers, and this is what a monkey would look like in diapers. And there's no way you can take darts in or anything else. But he didn't say anything thereafter. He was, Scott was very, very, very professional. He came from a big background in stage, and everything that Scott did in the film, he did. We had a wonderful stuntman named Diamond Farnsworth, who I worked with on Tales of the Gold Monkey and in Quantum Leap uh, and Battlestar Galactica and in Airwolf and everything Don ever had his hands on. Uh, Diamond worked for, but uh, he did the the rather delicate stunts. But other stunts, Scott did most of them himself, and he did all of his own piano playing, all of his own pool playing, all of his own singing, <laughs> all of his own singing. I mean, Man of La Mancha, that is all Scott, yeah. and he learned all of that. Scott is very, very, very professional. There's um. You, there's nothing you can say about him. We had no problems with the costumes. Sometimes he never saw them until he came into the fitting room. There just wasn't enough time. I sometimes had to make things overnight. It was so quick. We would get a script the day we started shooting a new episode, and they were not sequential. Uh, as you know, Alison Pregler found uh, a script where in one episode he was supposed to leap into being a pimp or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Because they had considered at the time about doing Southern Comfort, but it wasn't polished enough and they changed their mind. And uh, yeah. so we, they reshot the lines of that, I think, a, a, about a month later the last scene of that episode where he... Um, they, they usually did that when he was going on the episode that it was going to be. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sure, yeah. When when they see him transition at the end, that transition is shot the same time we shot the next episode. It wasn't shot at the same time we shot that episode. Sure. But what I'm trying to say is that when we were shooting one episode and we were... Uh, we were starting it, we got scripts for the next episode. 
So I virtually had to have all of the costumes for one episode done on the first day of shooting. Uh, if they were to shoot on day three, sometimes I would let the workroom have a couple more days to work on them, but usually I wanted everything done as soon as it could possibly be done because of all these glitches that sometimes happen and things you have to you cover your ass with that you're not expecting. Sure. So I always tried to get as much work as I could in because I only had seven days to prep for the next show. That's mm -hmm. all there was. And, um, and and we just shot continually. We never, ever took a break. Mm -hmm. could. Yeah. And there's another thing that people don't ever understand. You have to be... You have to be on your toes and you have to know what you're doing and you have to get it right the first time. This is not, you know, the second time the charm. Right, sure. You, because if it's not right and it gets on camera and you have what is now termed that new term called wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> sure, yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. Janet Jackson did not have a wardrobe malfunction. She had Velcro and they tore it loose so she'd get higher ratings. Yeah. Everybody knew that. But anyway, when there is a, mal a wardrobe malfunction or there's any malfunction that keeps the camera waiting, do you know how much it costs? It costs $30,000 a minute. <laughs> so if I don't have the right belt or he doesn't have his stockings on or something's missing in the scene and they have to hold camera, they write it up and it gets written off the costume department. Budget. Oh, wow. So we never ever held camera. Never. I. That's part of my great claim to fame. Is I never <laughs> held a camera in my entire career. Yeah. So to shift gears a little bit from from Scott Bakula to Dean Stockwell, like one of the things that Quantum Leap is really known for is is Al Calabici's signature outfits. <laughs> uh, I, I will tell you, like going back, like I grew up uh, very. Very modest means near poverty level in Southern Illinois. So watching this show growing up, I wanted nothing more than Al Calabici's outfit. <laughs> God, what, uh, his entire what work. I have done to people in life, <laughs> 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 the influence I've done, and I didn't mean to. You also, I don't because you've never read my book. Do you know that I'm responsible for spandex pants? I created spandex pants. <laughs> Yeah, you read my book. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, Dean's clothes. Uh, first of all, Dean, uh, let's talk about Dean. Yeah, um, Dean was one of my very, very favorite actors, even before I met Dean. Mm. Now, one of my all-time favorite actors was Roddy McDowell, and Roddy and I worked together seven times. I never worked with another actor as much as Roddy. And Roddy and Dean were old friends, and uh, another one who was in that group was Russ Tamblin and um, oh, and Tab Hunter. All of these people who I kind of idolized when I was young, I grew up and, and got to know. I, I, Roddy and I were very, very close. Tab and I were close. Uh, I got to know Rock, um, Robert Wagner, but I wasn't that close with him. Um, but... Um, uh, I've lost track of where... Oh, Dean. So where I had seen almost everything Dean had ever done. I mean, Long Day's Dirty and Tonight, I must have seen 
at least 400 times because I think it's one of the best adaptations of a play ever made. And Catherine yeah. Hepburn is absolutely sensational. And Dean just walks away with the movie. Uh, and I've seen all kinds of things he'd done, like Rapture that was from Europe that nobody had ever saw, and Sons and Lovers. And so I knew Dean backwards and forwards, and I met him. And I, it was all I could do to not show any enthusiasm, but I learned long time ago that you have to deal with an actor just like they're, you know, somebody of no importance whatsoever. Sure. And that's how I treated Dean. I'm, hi, how are you? And, da, da, da. and I didn't say a word to him about being a great fan of his or anything. <laughs> and we talked about his clothes, and he told me he really wasn't too particular about anything. He just, there was only one color he hated. He didn't like to wear uh, cerise, that sort of a pinky purple. And uh, anything else he was, he, would re- he was willing to wear, as long as it was comfortable and not binding and so forth and so on. So we met soon after after this telephone call, and um, we went to Melrose, which is an, a trendy street in Los Angeles, uh, or it was at the time. It's no longer. But um, there was nothing in the shops, and I already knew that, but I kind of just wanted to be with Dean and see him try on clothes and see what kind of problems there were, if there were going to be problems and so forth. I, I had had his sizes, and there were things that I was very curious about to see how clothes fit him. So we had coffee, and we talked. And we didn't talk about anything. I didn't talk about his work or anything. We talked something about, about the shooting and so forth and so on. And then we kind of went shopping, and we put on some shirts and some jackets, and he didn't. He didn't like trying on clothes. He hated that. And he said he really hated fittings because he had spent so much time of his life in fitting rooms for movies and so forth. And he was hoping that I could find a way of avoiding having to bring him in every show and fit him for something. And I said, well, that's not a big deal. I can have a dressmaker form made for you. And uh, because your clothes are all going to be contemporary, they're all going to be made, and you're just going to have to trust my craziness. And he goes, I don't care what you do for me, just I'll wear them. So I saw things in Dean uh, in trying on clothes that I knew that it was best that we make his clothes. Anyway, Dean is like 5'8", and he's um, his arms are a little shorter and his legs are a little shorter than a, a person of his in his proportions, mm. which means a great deal in designing because there was ways I knew how to make that look really, how I could make him really look snappy on screen. Um, so I started doing things for Dean, and Dean came to fittings, I think, twice. And then he said to me, I don't, I don't need to come here anymore. Just make my things and I'll wear them. And <laughs> I never showed Dean anything. I would make clothes up and send them to the set. Dean would try them on, get dressed, walk out of the set with his cigar, walk around and go, what do you think of this? Jean-Pierre did this for me. Do you like it? And he'd go, oh, that's fabulous, Dean. I mean, the silver jackets and the gold jackets and the matching shoes were just, everybody was in love with them. And um, the only time we saw Dean was when we did A Little Miracle. 
And um, that's because he played the ghost of Christmas Future. And um, we had nothing. And I, I brought him in and I got all these old clothes that most of them came from Universal Stock. And they were all worn and beat up and terrible. And we took a hot glue gun. And as he stood there, I glued chains on him and all kinds of spidery web like stuff that. and everything else. And sort of created the costume on him at the time. And he giggled and laughed and smoked a cigar and had a good time. That's not the only time I ever saw Dean. He um, he would try on the clothes and walk on the set and work with him. He was Dean is, the, as far as actors go, Dean is the epitome of professionalism. There's nobody like him. He always knew his lines. He always hit his marks. And um, yeah. It's a very funny story. When I did uh, uh, The Pleasure of His Company with Miss Turner, yeah, another one of my very, very, very close friends is the actress June Lockhart, who played the sexy space mom in Lost in Space. And yeah, yeah. Well, June had done a movie in the 40s with Lana, and they had kind of remained a distant friends. So when uh, I got the job to do the costumes for Lana, June wanted to come in and sort of pave the way for me because Lana's <laughs> reputation preceded her. So uh, it didn't do much good because uh, Lana was Lana. And so when Lana opened in... Chicago, June sent her a telegram and said, remember the old adage that was given to me by a famous director, actors are like circus horses, get out there, raise up on your hind legs, fart, and get the fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Lana was so incensed, she tore the telegram off. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. We're going to have to tweet that one. I love that. I love that. <laughs> Uh, I do have one, one quick question about Dean's costumes. Um, I think you, you're going to have the same question I have. You, I, I mean, clearly, based on what you just said, you had a lot of freedom in, in creating that. But because you had come into the show sort of, you know, after the pilot had been done, were there any sort of directives that you, you were given at all or, or that, you know, because your design? Yes, the and future? this is the funny part about how you were saying, I always laugh about this. And why I said what I did or what, what I have done, uh, I, I really had no intentions of creating a <laughs> lasting impression. The Bible on Quantum Leap was that Dean was very hedonistic. He was a man who caroused a lot, picked up women, partied, and da-da-da-da, and just wore sort of gaudy, flamboyant clothes. And this was my idea of gaudy, flamboyant clothes for the time because when we went shopping on Melrose, everything was black and white. I mm. knew I had to make his clothes because there was absolutely no color, nowhere. No yeah. color, no patterns, nothing. And I had to make all those crazy shirts like, um, oh, the one he wears in the um, uh, Miss Deep South when he's doing um, Quanta La Gusta with, with uh, Sam. Yeah. The, cut, the shirt, if you notice, it has picks up the same coloration as as uh, Sam's kind of Miranda costume. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I had read somewhere, I can't remember where I read this at, but from a, a storytelling perspective, one of the practical aspects of Al's costumes was supposed to be if someone was just tuning in mid-episode and they weren't sure what the what the what the television show was about. 
his flamboyant futuristic clothing was supposed to be shorthand to tell the audience that he is not in the same time future. period that everybody else is in. Yeah, I um, I didn't really my my concept of what the future was was just just craziness. I mean, it had sure. there was not, there was nothing. I I had things that I sort of used an awful lot of. I did a lot of cutout work. A lot of his ties had holes in them and sure, yeah, half yeah. moons and his lapels did that and sometimes his shirt collars had holes in them. It was just just things that were design elements that I liked that I felt had never been used in men's clothes that would look great in men's clothes and putting buttons on shirts that, you know, I I turn around today and I go to the men's stores and I see all these things that are actually total copies of my clothes. And um, <laughs> they say that, um, uh, what is it, is uh, something that's the greatest compliment uh, you can get. Uh, yeah. Uh, so speaking about sausage, I saw that you had tweeted the other day. You have up on eBay his red sunglasses from Kamikaze Kid. Right. Yes. Well, they were worn in several episodes. Yes, the red. Oh, okay. Okay. No, I, I was just yeah. I I saw that you had those glasses up on uh, eBay. People have wanted them for years and years and years, and I I I have a huge collection of yeah. uh, of of costumes. I, sure. I had uh, up until four years ago. I had over twenty five thousand pieces of vintage clothing. Wow. For men, women, and children, including hats, gloves, shoes, you name it. And um, I sold it all for a million dollars, and uh, I kept only my stuff, my really great pieces. And I have probably oh, about 500 pieces left, and a good 125 pieces are all stuff from Quantum Leap. But I'm trying to get rid of them, and but I'm not... Uh, I'm not going to any great extent. I keep just talking about it. And um, I have a list of how much each of them cost when they were made, which is mm -hmm. expensive. So, like, the Man of La Mancha costume with the cape and everything is, like, about $40,000. But that's because the boots and everything was made, the leather vests and hand-tooled and all that stuff. And they were very expensive. Uh, studio labor at the time was like $45 an hour overhead. Wow. So I'm not trying to sell them with a markup. I'm just trying to sell them for what they were worth and that they go to somebody who really would respect and treasure them. And Absolutely. So yeah. that was anybody on Twitter can, uh, Twitter can uh, go to my homepage, www.jeanpierredorliac.com. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's a place where you can get in touch with me, and um, I'll tell you the price of things if you want. For sure. Those just I mean, there's a there's another Quantum Leap podcast out there called Beckett to the Future, um, and I know recently they they did a they covered Kamikaze Kid, and I know one of the hosts has kind of become a little obsessed with trying to recreate Al's costume from that particular uh, part of the episode that included the red sunglasses. So, so yeah, that's, I get I get. People asking me those things all the time. <laughs> um, wanting to know if I have the silver jacket. To be honest with you, I don't know. Dean liked it so much. I think Dean ended up with it. But I ended up, I know I have the gold one and I have the copper and gold one and 
the purple and black one, and I have a lot of his little leather jackets that I kept because they were so unique. Those were some of my favorite things that I did, and and some of Dean's, too, because um, they broke the suit look that we had to do a lot for him. I think the freedom to, to be able to kind of create something like that and then share it with you know, an actor that obviously you, you, you loved and, and respected and then for him to appreciate it and get to have fun with it as well. Uh, you know, that's gotta be incredibly, incredibly satisfying and, and mean well, a lot. It's very rewarding because, um, I would do things sometimes with great trepidation. <laughs> I don't what exactly. Oh, I think I remember one was the peach suit. It was, uh, it just borderline being a pimp outfit. Yeah, and, uh, but I dressed it in such a way that it was very hot looking, and um, but I went to the set with it for Dean and to present it to him because I thought maybe this might be the piece that uh, broke the camel's back. And, <laughs> uh, but he loved it, and I said, uh, you know, I worry sometimes that I'm going to do something that's just too crazy that that you'll not like, and he gets somebody. You can't do anything that I won't like. So oh. Dean was a, Dean spoiled me. There was a lot of actors that I've worked with who would put on their clothes and go to work. That's professionalism. Actors who sit around and start picking about, oh, this should be a quarter of an inch tighter here, and I it's too short by an eighth of an inch in the sleeve, like Miss Turner did to me. Yeah. Um, it's stupidity. It's it's only an insecurity about yourself. It, you know, you get out there on stage and nobody knows any of that. I remember early in my career, way, way long time ago, I did a play called The Matchmaker, and I had costumes made. And because I was very limited in in uh, budget then, because this was very small time, wasn't Hollywood, uh, we did Suits and Corduroy, which was possible in the 20s. And... Um, but the person who made them made the the cord in the corduroy jacket of the suit go in one direction, and the cord in the pants went the other direction. And when I saw them, when the actor walked out on stage and I saw them, I my heart sunk, and I just felt so awful. Mm. And I was just upset, totally upset. And the director was very kind, and he said, you know, Jean-Pierre, I understand your problem, I understand what you've been going through, but you should just relax because only from the first row of the audience can you tell that the court is going in a different direction. <laughs> and it's true. It's very, very true, and you have to remember that. Sometimes you have to hold back because you see things, I see things that people will never pay any attention to. Oh, sure. sure. I mean, that, that's, you know, I, I think that's one of the fascinating things about design work in general. And it's something that I, I, I've only um, done a little bit of sound. And, you know, obviously in school, you, you know, took some lighting design classes and scenic design classes. But it is one of those things that I, it can be very thankless because you put all this effort in to get these small details right. But as an actor, I really did always appreciate that. You know, it, I already spoke about my love and, and appreciation of costume design, but uh, set design and prop designers, you know, also, again, when, when, it's, when it's right, it's just so wonderful because it transports you in a way that as much as I think an actor must have an incredible imagination, when you can have those tactile experiences 
uh, in particular on stage, it, it really it takes you to another place and, and it you know makes your job so much easier. Um, so it, I, I think that it is it is unfortunate that a lot of times those those jobs are a little thankless. But I think for you, you know, I mean, obviously Academy Award nomination, um, Emmy nominations, Emmy wins. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you've certainly seen some rewards, you've reaped some rewards in your career as far as that goes. And, oh, you know, having... listen, I, is this, uh, uh, Dennis? That was I hate to tell you this, but uh, the Academy Award is not the bar of merit in this city. The Academy Award is political. A lot of the Academy Awards are given because of politics. Uh, a lot of the Academy Awards are bought a lot of the, I knew somebody who slept with everybody on the Golden Globes committee to get the Golden Globes statuette. Wow. Did the same thing with the Academy Awards, but she didn't make it enough because she only got a nomination. <laughs> uh, it's not what you think it is. It's uh, the Academy Awards, uh, there are many, many, many great films that go totally unnoticed in performances that are completely forgotten. They gave Gwyneth Paltrow, who couldn't act her way out of a wet paper bag, the Academy Award for Shakespeare in Love, when the woman from uh, from Brazil, who was in uh, Passage of the Sun, or, I, or another was something, another film I can't remember the name of it right now, she was unbelievable, uh, and they gave it to Gwyneth Paltrow. Why? Because her father had recently died, and he'd been a, a director who was quasi at best. Uh, no, I, I, I have no absolute regard for the Academy Award nomination at all, or the, uh, or the Emmy for that matter. I think they're really superfluous. I don't think, the thing I dislike about Hollywood is these awards, because why do we have to have awards for being the best? <laughs> Nobody has to be the best. What is important is doing your best. But people don't do their best. They slough off and do everything they possibly can to get an award to prove to people that they're the best. That is the biggest bunch of bullshit in the world. So, no, I'm really sorry. I am not impressed by any of my awards. I never went out for them, and I really didn't care about them when I was nominated for them. Well, I I think that's incredibly lovely, actually, and I appreciate so much what you just said. I, I think that... You know, it, it, it is a superficial thing for me to say. This is Sam, by the way. Uh, but, you know, the fact is, is that there are a lot of people out there that, that, that think otherwise. So I appreciate so much what you just said, and, and, and I couldn't agree more. I think that, you know, it's more important to do your best. Um, I'll than tell it, you it, another story. Because I, I don't care. There was <laughs> okay, a okay. designer whose name was Paul Zasipanevich, who worked for Irwin Allen, who did a... TV series, Lost in Space, uh-huh. that June Lockhart was the star of. And if you noticed recently on Twitter, I ran a picture of June wearing a, uh, being chased by a monster. Hello? Hold on a second. Okay, sure. no problem. Hold on. I don't know. Something came up on my phone. Um, anyway... Uh, this picture is on on Twitter of her being chased by this monster from Lost in Space, and there's a zipper showing in the middle of the monster's stomach. And uh, June wrote on the note, be careful of 
monsters in outer space because their zippers are open and they're horny. I, so I ran them out. Anyway, to make a story, long story short, Paul Dastanavich was at best uh, a ludicrous designer. He went on to do The Towering Inferno, uh, The Poseidon Adventure, The Swarm, and When Time Ran Out. Uh, he was nominated for all those costumes from The Poseidon Adventure, which were pretty awful. Suddenly, Pamela Sue Martin is stranded in the ship that's turned upside down, and she whips off her skirt, and she's got on hot shorts. I mean, it was, like, so dumb. Then he turned around and got nominated for The Swarm. In 1980, when I was nominated for Somewhere in Time, he was nominated for When Time Ran Out with Paul Newman and Jacqueline Bissett running through the jungles of Java, dressed in fatigue shorts and um, khaki shirts and pith helmets. And nothing else. There was no other comments in, in the costumes in the movie. And everybody kept wondering, why did he get nominated for this? It, you could have bought this at some, you know, Army-Navy outlet. Well, Paul Dastanavich knew three costume designers who were on the, in the Academy Awards. And the costume designers' nominations are compiled by the members of the Academy who in the costume designer group. Well, he knew these three costume designers, and every birthday and every Christmas, he would send them a very expensive bottle of champagne, like Cristal, which was $100, and a very expensive silver present, like a silver frame uh, for pictures or a, a champagne cooler or something. He would lavish people with gifts, these three people in particular, because every time it came nomination time for the Academy Awards, he would get their votes, and all you needed was five nominations in your area to get an Academy Award nomination. And Paul Dastanavich has five Academy Award nominations, and he's the worst costume designer in the world. Yeah. And this is not sour grapes. This is the truth. Yeah. So I don't believe in the awards, and I don't believe in this business. The business is um, it, 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 it's, it's very involving, and it's, if you do your research, you'll find out that a great deal of people in this business have died early because of stress and anxiety or heart attacks or the number one killer of them all, alcohol. Okay. And there's so many drunks in this business, it's unbelievable. So I'm sorry, I don't mean to sound down to you people, but... I just think it's time that that people stop living a, a another life and realize that uh, Hollywood is just like a comic book and nothing more. Especially now, because the majority of the things that they do make are nothing but adaptations <laughs> of comic books. Right, right. Um, I don't know. I yeah, because I was looking at the the description of your book. You had been talking about how the book spans between the years 1973 and 1985, and you felt like it was around that point that uh, a lot of what you were saying, like like Hollywood, like kind of took this turn and it kind of lost its uh, it, its glamour. It was the last of the glamorous of years. That's yeah. what it was. It was the last of the glamorous years. Um, actually. 
Um, recently, the Costume Designers Guild in town has been doing some uh, things, and they, uh, uh, they got me involved in speaking at the Los Angeles County Museum about two weeks ago, which was a wonderful turnout, and I spoke about my book and about movie making and so forth and so on. And now they're going to do a screening of Somewhere in Time in which I'm going to speak to the members of the of the costume designers. And they wanted to talk to me because they want me to talk about how how the business was because it's not that way anymore. There's very very few of the costume designers today have the chance to really have the opportunity to do the kind of work I did. And the kind of work I did was done kind of like, um, it, it just happened to be so lucky for me because I was adamant about not being pigeonholed. I did not want to be Bob Mackie. I like Bob Mackie's work, I'm not saying that, but I didn't want to be known for one thing. And I didn't want to be like Nolan Miller, who was known for Dynasty and Glamour and today's work. And I didn't want to be known by like Bob Ringwood, who does nothing but science fiction movies. I wanted to be—I wanted to be a costume designer who was capable of doing a wide range of things. Hollywood doesn't like that. They want to pigeonhole you. They want to put you there and go, "Oh, we're going to do a western, so we'll use him." Sure. And I fought and fought and fought my entire career. Sometimes doing a lot of stuff that wasn't that beneficial to my career just to prove that I could do something else that wasn't in line with what I did last. After I did um, Quantum Leap, I did Buck Rogers in the 20th century, Mm -hmm. and immediately I got a call from Italy, from Dino De Laurentiis, who I had worked with years ago on Barbarella, and he wanted me to do Flash Gordon. And I met with uh, Nicholas Rogue, who was going to direct, and we got along fine, and they were putting paper, to, pen to paper to sign me when Nicholas Rogue left this thing to do another uh, movie. And I thought to myself, I, I can't do this either. I've got to go. If I do another science fiction thing, that's all they're going to ever think of me as. If I want to do a musical, they're going to know, oh, he can only do science fiction. So you have to be very, very careful. That's one of the pitfalls of this business is they love, Hollywood loves to put you in this little group, and that's where you stay your entire career. That's easy to tell. That's really interesting because I've always thought about that from the actor's perspective. I never thought about that from 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 the other side, from a costume design perspective. No, it's true. It's true of everybody. It's true of directors. It's true of musicians. It's true of everybody. Marlena Dietrich told me years ago when I was an actor and thinking about being a costume designer, she said, darling, you must make your mind up. You cannot be both in Hollywood because they will never understand. And she was so right. Sure, sure. So speaking of uh, trying different things and putting pen to paper, you said before we hit record, uh, you wrote The Naked Truth. That was in 2015. And now you're working on a future book? Yeah, I went back. You know, I have... I had several. I have another book that was out before the negative called Abracadabra Alakazam that was optioned three times for a movie. Oh, wow. Last time, Charlie's Theron, and she would have been perfect in it, but the English producers lost their backing and 
So I'm hoping somebody will come along with it. But I went back to writing uh, fiction again instead of doing uh, uh, a memoir, which mm-hmm. is what more or less the naked truth is. Although it's not really a memoir, it's really a chronicle. That's why I called it that because I, I particularly stayed away from any of my personal life in the book. I don't talk about anything except where I went and what I did and how I worked on things because I, yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I, I think that kiss and tell all stuff is a bunch of crap. So anyway, <laughs> uh, I've been writing for a long, long time. I've had, uh, I, I wrote an episode of. Um, uh, uh, for Battlestar Galactica that Glenn loved that we, we were going to shoot and then the series didn't go and then I rewrote it and sold it and it's, it's in Italy now it's an option for a film it's very much like Barbarella and um, I have another book coming out hopefully at the end of the year called All There Is and Then Some and it was a huge undertaking because it's a there's like a an ensemble of 25 leading characters in this hotel that's set in the Caribbean uh, in Martinique, and uh, it's all about um, oh, <laughs> drug trafficking and white slavery and body parts operations, and you name it, it's all there is in them. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I, well, I, you know, it's funny because obviously, you know, we started off talking about the naked truth, and I was like, oh, I, you know, I, I definitely need to check this out, but now after having heard you talk about Abracadabra, Alakazam, I, I read real quick just a blurb about it, and that's how it's fascinating, and now you're talking about this. It's just, it's, uh, I mean, clearly, I think one of the things that's true of a lot of people who get involved in any kind of art form that, that, that you know, there's more breadth to that than I, a lot of people give credit to, going back to what you were saying about Hollywood wanting to pigeonhole people, uh, so the opportunity to kind of have those those creative outlets and expressing yourself, I think, is wonderful. Um, and and I look forward to being able to actually read uh, read your writing now. Oh, I hope you do because I um I um I'm very proud of uh, of my work, um, especially in writing. Um, I learned so much uh, because I was writing before I was costume designing. Actually, mm-hmm. I learned so much about better writing through costume designing. And I have to tell you that um, I'm sure every writer's going to just cringe when I say this, but <laughs> writing is not much different than costume designing. It's, you know, mm. uh, you use verbs and adverbs in the same way you use buttons and buttonholes and uh, and everything else. Lace can be adjectives. and uh, it, it, It's just putting it all together and having it semblance of something, a structure before you actually begin uh, and then adding on to it as you go along. And um, I get a great satisfaction out of writing. It's possibly even more so than um, than costume designing because when I'm writing, I get to really be descriptive about everything. And one of the things that everybody has said about all my writing is that I'm a very visual writer. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that I read so many scripts for so so many years. For sure. You know, television scripts, one a week, is an awful lot to digest over the length of time I put in the business. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I can only imagine. Uh, so our, our 
podcast is, is uh, <laughs> named Fate's Wide Wheel, which is a song that uh, that Scott Bakula sings in the episode Glitter Rock. So we so, would be remiss if we did oh not... Oh, my God, Glitter Rock. <laughs> yeah, we would be remiss if we didn't ask you to tell a story about uh, yeah. from that episode. <laughs> okay, you got it. Awesome. You know what today is? Uh, today. Oh my gosh, you're right. It's this. It, we are talking on April the 12th, which is the leap date for that episode. <laughs> we, we we planned that. We planned that. Do you know why it was April 12th? Uh, uh, my uh, birthday. It's my birthday. Oh, that's oh, right. You God, mentioned that in right. our back and forth. Happy birthday, yes. sir. Yes. <laughs> Me and Ann Miller and David Cassidy <laughs> um, oh, and David God. Letterman and 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 uh, Shannon Doherty of all people. Ugh. Anyway, um, <laughs> yes, they um, they uh, they use that date for me. There was a lot of stuff in Quantum Leap that was uh, has a lot of endearing moments. First of all, um, Sea Bride was written for me. Uh, they wrote it for me because I was tired. I sat in the, in the production meeting and I went, "Oh God." Another elevator show where they're stuck in a plane over the Bermuda Triangle and there's no changes. <laughs> yeah. You're not giving me anything to do, are you? And so they they said, well, we're going to give you something to do, John I said, well, after the the Watts riot, I hope it has something some glamour to it. So they wrote Seabright, and that's how I, they got Seabright. They also, when we were doing Southern Comfort, they needed a name for the guy in Southern Comfort who was the evil man, and they wanted a French name that they didn't have any uh, getting a clearance of. And since my name is the only Dorley act in the United States that is known, uh, <laughs> he became Jake Dorley act. <laughs> and the other thing that was funny about the show is when we did the mental institution show, which I can't, can't remember even the name of it now. Uh, theater. Yeah. Oh, Shock Theater, right. We were in the production meeting, and we're reading the script, and they come to the guy walking down the hall, going, Butcher Baker, Candlestick Mayor. I said, what do you want him to look like? What do you want him to look like? I'm very tired and worn inmate. And I said, why don't you just use me? I I look like that after six seasons of the, or five seasons of this show. I could do this in my sleep. And Don Delsay says, you're it. <laughs> I, I love I love that moment in that episode because it, it's such a, a, a creepy, scary moment at the beginning <laughs> of the episode, and like the, it has no bearing on the rest of the episode. It's just no, a creepy moment at the beginning, and the, yeah, I've always loved the way you you read that line. <laughs> I had fun with the show. I enjoyed uh, um, Quantum Leap. Is like on the top of my list of. Uh, of, of the favorite things I ever did. I think Blue Lagoon's my most favorite project. And then I had a show that nobody ever saw that I did lastly called The Lot that was on AMC. It was wonderful. It was about um, a fictitious uh, Hollywood studio in 1938. And it was a funny and filled with scandalous gossip and so forth and so on. And I, and I loved doing the late 30s clothes more than probably anything else other than the early So um, Quantum Leap has a very special place in my heart. Uh, I I don't even remember an episode that we had. Somebody asked me once if 
can you remember an episode that was really hard and difficult and you didn't really like? And I can't even remember that. I they were all very stressful, that's for sure. But sure. Um, I, I don't remember anything that I really disliked having to do. There's a lot that I did that I don't even remember, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, yeah, I mean, well, I can imagine, yeah. So, so going back real quick, uh, uh, just wanting to try to get a, a quick story uh, in about Glitter Rock and, and thinking about the 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 way that you know the, these costumes that they wore in the in the concert scenes, for instance, and Sam has the 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 face paint and the makeup and the wigs, and you know how much of of the designs of that, for instance, were you was that working in conjunction with anyone else, like makeup? Yeah, I worked that? with makeup and hair. Um, okay. We all talked about that. I wasn't very thrilled with the kiss look that they ended up with makeup. I was hoping it could have been something different, but sure. Uh, I uh, that wasn't my department, that, and uh, I you can say so much in certain things. I have a lot to say about hair, especially with women if they're wearing a hat and how their hair has to go for to accommodate the hat. But in something like that, I just and and that was also uh, punky anyway, or not uh, glitter rock. Um, uh, everything really went during that time, uh, and so. It, it didn't. Um, it didn't bother me. I I liked the show. I thought the show turned out to be quite wonderful. I, I liked the music from it. I loved Rock the Redhead very very much. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I uh, it, it was a great show to do. It was fun. Um, Michael Severus, who was who played one of the uh, band members, went on to become a huge star on Broadway. Won the Tony actually. And he was a wonderful person to work with. All of the guys in the group were great. Um, it was we. Oh, the only thing that we had problems with was Sam's pants. Sam's pants shirt. were made out of. Um, they were made out of um, a chain mail. Oh my oh, God. God! Somebody's trying to get in touch with you. Just leave it alone. I guess you can't hear that beat. Anyway, his pants were made out of chain mail, and uh, he had a scene where he goes over backwards on a sofa in it in, in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And when he went over backwards, the pants, because they were linked together, actually split open. And mm -hmm. we were frantic over that. I remember we had to take the pants and take them back to the shop in a matter of 20 minutes and put in a, a spandex panel and have the things whipped together so that... You couldn't tell the difference. It was that was the only frustrating thing about the show that I can remember. Sure. Oh wow! Sure. Thank you for sharing that memory. Yeah. Um, I I think uh, I we really just appreciate you joining us and and and. Oh, I, I didn't thank you very much for even asking me to uh, to speak with you. I enjoy doing this. I really do. I don't mean mean to sound down about this business, but. I feel people need to know more about this, and if they're going to do this, to be aware of all the pitfalls and all the, you know, the holes in the road, so forth, you've got to go through to get anywhere in this town. It's just not a walk in the park. It really isn't. And there's, you really have to knock yourself out to get anywhere in Hollywood. It's well, for sure. Very little of it comes. 
in a very good way. And secondly, you have competition from people who will do anything to get where they go, and, and I mean anything. And yeah. when you have to work with that kind of competition, you really sort of lose a lot of faith at times. But good luck to uh, anybody who wants to come out here and, and go through this. Um, I'm sure you will have a lot to uh, remember from working in Hollywood. And uh, good luck to you guys on your series, on your uh, your your uh, your show. Um, I wish you the best. I'm so glad that there are people like you who are interested in uh, in Quantum Leap and the fact that you weren't around from the very beginning when it first aired and you picked it up years later means a great deal to me because um, the the emphasis on what we were trying to put on certain situations. Uh, in the long run, turned out to be timeless because there's still things that are so prevalent right now. I, watching the little miracle the other night and seeing the tower apartment that they use it, it looks so much like Trump Tower. I was just shocked. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, we can go down a whole other road about Trump. <laughs> yeah. We, anyway, we, we, you guys take little care. Little Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you Dr. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Well, we really appreciate it, and we'll definitely uh, let you know when the episode is, is ready to go and, uh, and make sure we send you the links. But we, we really are grateful for you giving your time to us, especially on your birthday. Happy birthday to you, and, uh, mm-hmm. and who knows? Maybe we'll get the chance to talk to you again in the future. Oh, sure. Anytime. Okay. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Take care, sir. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So obviously we were thrilled to be able to have Jean-Pierre Dorleac on the show today. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was really uh, it was really pretty great, honestly. Mm-hmm. I, I loved getting to talk about even the non-quantum leap stuff. And it's funny because I think in the lead up to the interview when we had talked to him, he you know he'd almost given an impression, or at least maybe I had taken it in that he you know he was eager to talk about quantum leap, but he, there were other things he wanted to talk more about. And I kind of feel like he. Talk just as much just about quality as, yeah. as anything else, which yeah, is great and a joy. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, you know, just for my two cents, that while you know he might have felt like he was bumming people out about Hollywood, that mm-hmm. you know I, I felt like he was just being very honest, and I really appreciated that. And I think that there was a, a, obviously a certain joy that came across so clearly mm-hmm. with Absolutely. him uh, yeah. about the work that he got to do as an artist. And so, you know, in, in spite of maybe anyone kind of hearing something and being like, oh, man, it's too bad that Hollywood's that way, yeah. I feel like overall... I think everybody knows that Hollywood's <laughs> that way. He's is, he, he just very honest about it, and he, he, yeah. he just kind of strips away the bullshit of it. If you follow him on on Twitter, uh, and, and we'll put this out on our, our social media, he, he, has said, he has said very similar things to that effect uh, on Twitter as well. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, well, I mean, obviously, it's a thrill for us to have our first, you know, actual talent that works from, from, from the show. show yeah, yeah. Um, and be yeah. able to chat with them and hear stories about Scott and Dean and yeah, like you know, I said, the process. We were, yeah, when I was a kid, I wanted nothing more than Al Calabich's <laughs> entire wardrobe. You so, said that before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So having talked with the costume designer who made those, boom, that 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 checks ones off the bucket list. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and and, and even thinking about the, some of the non quantum leap work, you know, we we talked briefly touched on Heart and Souls, which is a film that, that I'm fairly familiar with. Uh, it was a film that basically had uh, the bulk of the cast. 
um, had died in like 1958, but the film is set in the early 90s. Sure. Yeah. And so to have that juxtaposition of costumes, I'm sure must have been fun to work on. And additionally, to have to basically decide this is the costume this person wears because they, they couldn't change clothes because they were ghosts. Sure. Yeah. So, so it's like you, you wear one costume for the course of this mm-hmm. two hour film. And, uh, I, I, I should have asked him, you know, uh, about the process for that. Okay. But I mean, just in general, I mean, it's clear that his work, um, you know, he, he, he's concerned about more than just making somebody look good or making something look good. He's about telling a story with the work. Sure. And, and for, for me personally, that's something that I appreciate so much. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's our episode this week, everyone. It is indeed, yeah. So thank you for joining us. We'll be back uh, next week with um, Leaping In Without a Net. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're almost we're almost close to the end of the second season. So we are. We're barreling right, we're barreling right along. Uh, I, you, we haven't talked about this in person at, at all, but to give a plug, you started another podcast. <laughs> I did start another podcast. Because you just shared it. You are... You, you, you talk so little on social media, you just shared the link. Uh, and I was like, oh, that's a wrestling podcast. What is this? And then I, I, I listened to it and I jumped like a few minutes into it. I'm like, oh yeah, this is this is Sam. A new yeah, podcast. So, I, I, a dear friend of mine, uh, uh, he lives out in Pennsylvania and you know he and I are, are big wrestling fans. And I don't know if I've mentioned that on the podcast before. I feel like maybe I have. But anyway, um, he, he was eager, especially because we've had this podcast going for a while. He was eager to do something and so I said, sure, we can give it a shot. And, and we've, we've done two episodes. One has been released. And it actually has been a lot of fun. It's, it's much looser. Like, I feel like we've got more oh, of a sure. format yeah. than that. So, I mean, just from a little bit of listening, she's like, it's just going to be like you're going to talk about whatever is on your mind that week about yeah. Uh, wrestling. That's so awesome. yeah, no, we're just having fun with it. But it's called King of Pro Wrestling Podcast. Uh, if you have any interest in that at all, which I... I would think that most of our listeners probably don't, but if you do, do, (laughs) feel free to check it out. But anyway, check that out, and we'll be back next week with Leaping In Without a Net. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed what you've heard or have any questions or comments, don't be shy. Reach out to us online at www.quantumleappod.com or Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Fates Wide Wheel. And remember to hit the subscribe button and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you may be listening. Until next time. Close.